following broadcast has been approved for Elite Hornets fans. What a block by Cody Zeller. Walker down the lane. Drive, shoots, scores! Game over! Bringing back the buzz was only the beginning. We will not go quietly into the night. It's Hornets talk for the hardcore fans. It's Hive Talk Live. Welcome in, Hornets fans. You are listening to Hive Talk Live on AppTheHive.com. It's Hornets talk for the hardcore fan. We are live in the Gittimer.com studios in BEAU, beautiful uptown Charlotte. I'm Doug Branson. And I'm David Walker, Doug. I'm searching for something <laughs> to say here, and it's not coming. I've been searching all day. You, I was you're searching giving, this morning. I'm sorry I missed you on our mini pod this morning. That's okay. You're giving me the uh, the Ross Geller from Friends. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Coming up, guys, would Kobe Bryant have played for the Hornets after they drafted him in 1996? Plus, what did Al Jefferson, a prep-to-pro star, struggle with most in his transition to the NBA? And Nick Denning is here. He's a little bit older, a little bit wiser, and uh, he knows what's happening around the NBA. And with that, we say, let's swarm Charlotte. I mean, we would be remiss, I think, as basketball fans, as basketball aficionados, mm. to not mention mm. the basketball game that happened last night. One of the best NCAA, even though the result isn't, I think, what either of us wanted. That's beside the point. That was an amazing finish in the, in the UNC Villanova NCAA championship game. Yeah, I mean, let's just uh, – so what you're saying, you want to just relive, you know, one of the worst nights of my life? That's I, good. <laughs> well, no, I don't want to – I'll roll some – I can roll some Jimmy, sad music hit, for you. Just hit me with the drop that I've been screaming in my head all day, please. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, does that make I'll you feel better? Down. I'm just uh... – Well, we should talk about this. All um, right. The, and, and here's why. I mean, I got some stuff to talk about if you want to talk about some stuff. I want to talk about Villanova because I think that Villanova did in that game and really that whole tournament what Golden State has done in a sense in the NBA, and that's thrive off of chaos. Body check people? Scrambling, pushing the ball. I'm kidding. Villanova taking the fans. shot when they when they had an opportunity to take a shot. And this has been the year of chaos in basketball. And, you know, in a sense, on both defense and offense, that's what Villanova did. Uh, they had a great game plan. I think both teams had a pretty good game plan. Um, and, ex- I mean, look, it was a three-point game. So, and it came down to a, a long-range three-point shot that will be replayed every March, uh, if not every other month in the calendar year for the next, oh, I don't know, forever. For UNC, so we can look I, forward to that. For UNC, I think that's probably – only set in terms of worst things that could have happened to <laughs> that's the one the that's the worst no i think it's the second worst because losing to duke in the tournament has always been the nightmare that would be the universe collapsing because at, at that point duke would have and even losing to state would be really tough uh, but i, I want to go back to this this idea of the, the year of chaos so when when villanova when unc made their comeback it was really because villanova started to try to wind time down and and they started to stall and get out of that chaotic motion. 
and that's when UNC was able to get some defensive stops. But when Villanova was moving all around the floor and and just causing absolute chaos on offense and defense, that's when that team thrived. And well, it's not like they were they were speeding the game up at any point, though. I mean, they weren't exactly. They no, they weren't the ball of the floor. You're just saying well, the they were no. Court. Well, hold on, because I think they weren't necessarily trying to get out into transition, but they were pushing the ball mm. and, and they were taking. Yeah, they were. That's what, and that's what they did to Oklahoma. Every time they took the ball out, they they pushed the ball at the floor. They walked it they up could. a lot. They walked it up a lot last night, if I recall correctly. You don't think so? Uh, well, your 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 memories are are damaged. Well. No, I think I think There's they tried they, they, the intensity that they showed on offense and defense screamed chaos to me. I think in the half court, I don't. I think they were walking the ball up a lot more. I mean, they wanted to slow it down. They didn't want to run with Carolina, though. I don't think necessarily not the whole game. I think it should. I mean, be. they tried to. I think they were more aggressive on defense in the full court than they were on offense. I think it should be a warning to teams like the Charlotte Hornets that. A team that's undersized uh, could come in and take away what UNC did so well, which was dominate the paint, mm-hmm. get inside. That was their bread and butter, and Villanova was able to game plan them out of that game. And if you're the Charlotte Hornets, it's kind of the opposite. You're very good at taking three-point shots, but w- will a team well, come yeah, along I mean, and, ta- and completely take that out of your game? Well, you know, in the, in the postseason – you know, it's not going to be that easy on offense for the Hornets getting to that. But can we, can we just real quick, um, can we run down a list of, I don't know, complaints for, from the, from your NCAA broadcast real quick, or just presentation. Let me just say this. Is there any reason, Doug, that you see it fit to have the baselines of the court, five different colors and multiple lines running across the corners of that thing. Do you know what I'm talking about? The graphics along, not to mention it's raised up 10 feet off of ground. Oh, That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Uh, so we can, you know, look at from that angle, like we're in the, like we're, well, like, we're in the, mean, like the, we're in the gutter. The the presentation of the, the championship, it's so different from the we're, final four. It's so different from any other basketball not, atmosphere. Is, is there any other is there a championship arena that has played in, you, you know, you don't, you're not playing. Um, the student section is, is like a hundred feet back. <laughs> There's no other sport that plays the championship game in an arena that is not built for said sport. Well, there, but I mean, there's this, no other, there's no other sport that, that plays games on a battleship either. <laughs> true. True. And this is not like complaints about the game or the result. This is just in general. Like, You've already these, had those. I've, well, I've got plenty of them, but I'm just saying like, that is stupid. That's not going anywhere though. Like we can get over that. I think the court thing is weird. Remember, like a couple of years ago, when they had these massive decals on the court, and like, Roy was very Roy Williams, the coach of UNC, was very adamant about yeah, getting rid of those. People were flying all over the place, so they got rid of those. That's good. I just think when you mess with like the the lines and stuff, I mean, no one else talked about it. But if you'll remember back in the Syracuse game, there were a couple of times where people stepped out of bounds that wasn't called, and I don't know if that has anything to do with lines and colors. But when you're looking at the baseline, you need to be able to discern it you know, out of the corner of your eye. So that's just a little pet peeve for me. Not to mention uh, cutting to the images of the fans after every made basket. Not the fans in the arena, mind you. The fans in the home sites of the arena. Well, the the ones in Villanova who are participating in some kind of rave. Was that a flash? Yeah, yeah it was a it was, rave, it was right? Some kind of bubbles ecstasy-filled rave. 
Okay, uh, we, anyway. we, got, we got to get to this interview. This is a big interview. We've been pubbing it all week. Uh, we sat down uh, with Jonathan Abrams, author of the book Boys Among Men. It's all about the uh, history of the high school directly into the NBA transition. And it has a longer history than you think, but uh, the, the main part of this history is from 1995 until 2005. Extremely interesting conversation with Jonathan. Let's go to it. So are you tired of uh, hearing about how great your book is yet? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, the the funny thing is, like, I'm I'm not used to talking this much, so that's been interesting is trying to like, I don't know how people like Stephen and keep their energy up for, for so long. Um, I guess it's a lot of fake, uh, fake madness or whatever. Lots and lots of Red uh, Bull. Yes. And drugs. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's been a fun experience. And when you're, you know, when, when I was writing it, it was, it's really isolating to write a book, you know, when you're done, you don't know what the reception or reaction is going to be. So to see it been pretty positive has been uh, really, really gratifying. Well, both, both David and I love the book. Fantastic read. I loved how you weaved the different stories of each individual player, but also incorporated the different angles of, of all of the players involved. Um, what made you want to write about the move from high school basketball directly to the NBA? So I was a senior in high school in 2001. So that was the same year that Kwame Brown, Tyson Chandler, and Eddie Curry were high school seniors. So I was a basketball fan back then and pretty much following their careers in real time. And you hear all the, the stories about how Kwame is going to be this next uh, all-star and Eddie Curry is the next Shaquille O'Neal, Tyson Chandler is the next Kevin Garnett. And you fast forward more than a decade later and I'm covering the league and it's almost like what happened to these guys and where was the proclamations for these guys different from the reality. So that was one. And then also for Grantland, I had done a few profiles on high school to pro guys. And it just seemed like, you know, even the average NBA guys who had made the jump from high school to take a guy like Gerald Green, it seemed like his path to, just respectability was a lot tougher than the average guy. I mean, just in his example, he had to go play in Siberia before he kind of gained the maturity to become an NBA rotation player. So I think it was those two combinations. Most fans know the major names of players who went prep to pro, Kobe Bryant, Kevin Garnett, LeBron James, Dwight Howard. But what's the most fascinating, uh, what's most fascinating to you that people don't know generally about the journey from prep to pro that maybe gets lost when, when people discuss this subject? I think especially for the success stories, it's, it's just crazy to me, the the amount of dedication and uh, maturation it took to be able to do that because, you know, I know where I was at 18 and if I was subjected to fame and, and money and popularity at that point in time, it would have, I don't know where I would have ended up. A lot of that can go to one ten and and just divert them in life. Um, you you look at your life in high school and it's pretty pretty much regimented. You're going to class, you're going to practice, you're going to do homework, you're going home. When you go to the NBA, you have a lot of free time now on your hands. You you practicing only for a couple hours a day. 
uh, most days. And then, you know, you have money for the first time and time for the first time. And that's, that's a lot of, uh, that's a recipe for disaster for a lot of people. And I think using that time to master their craft is the thing that kind of separated uh, the guys who made it from, from some of the guys who didn't. With the 13th pick in the 1996 NBA draft, the Charlotte Hornets select Kobe Bryant from Lower Marion High School in Pennsylvania. You profile Kobe Bryant and his entrance from prep to pro in 1996. Kobe Bryant inextricably linked with the Charlotte Hornets franchise. The Hornets selected Kobe Bryant with the 13th selection in the 1996 draft. Of course, as, as most of our listeners know, the, the Hornets had an arrangement with the Los Angeles Lakers to trade Kobe. What our listeners might not know and what you write about is that the deal almost fell through. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, the deal was a contention on Vladdy Divac, uh accepting a trade to Charlotte. And, and I grew up in Southern California, so I remember this in real time, too. I was kind of sad about Vladi leaving because Vladi was a was a cornerstone to the to the Lakers. And even though Shaquille O'Neal was coming, uh, Vladi was really ingrained in the Los Angeles community. He was a he was a good guy that everybody liked and appreciated and enjoyed. So seeing him traded for for a high school player that nobody had really heard of at that time was was a pretty much of a shock. And Vladi for a while threatened and contemplated retiring instead of uh, reporting to Charlotte. He had his family was uh, from overseas and had made their homes in Los Angeles and had never lived outside of Los Angeles in the United States. So he really, really contemplated whether to retire, which would have just completely nullified that trade. Uh, Jerry West, the Lakers GM, wanted uh, Bob Bass to just agree to it, and they could convince Vladi later, but uh, uh, Bob Bass said, no way. And basically, Vladi decided the Lakers had been good for him, so he didn't want to uh, just nullify this trade and negate this trade when the Lakers thought that they could become a much better organization. And correct me if I'm wrong, Jonathan, but I get the sense from from reading your account that the fact that the Hornets and the Lakers had a a backdoor deal in place helped Kobe Bryant fall as far as he did. Yeah, because uh, – Basically, once the Lakers had shown interest in Kobe Bryant, his agent, Arden Tellum, stopped his workout. So Kobe didn't work out for maybe about half the teams that were that had those first 12 picks, and he didn't work out for the Hornets. So Bob Bass said that he wasn't going to take Kobe um, at all because he hadn't, he hadn't seen him play, and so he had no plans of keeping him. And that was the same for, for a number of teams. Um, and it was it was really interesting the way that Arn Tellum was able to manipulate that draft in order to get Kobe down to the 13th pick because that would never, ever, ever happen in this day and age. So the idea that, that Kobe Bryant likes to float around is that the Hornets never wanted him, but in your conversations with Bass, it sounds like that, that Kobe kind of honed in on one team and didn't really want any of the rest of the teams. Yeah, he wanted to go to Los Angeles and you know, the biggest hurdle was the, the Nets with that eighth pick. Their GM, John Nash, really wanted to draft Kobe, but he was overruled by John Calipari, who was the team's president and, and coach at the time, just coming out of uh, being a college coach. And he was kind of frightened off uh, drafting a high school player at that time. It's something that John Nash really, really regrets to this day. I think another interesting facet 
about this is that the Hornets got better when they traded for Vladi for that in the in the immediate uh, returns. So I think Bob Bass won Executive of the Year after after making that trade. Yeah, and I think it's important, Jonathan, that that we understand. Like hindsight is always twenty twenty, and even after Kevin Garnett uh, was drafted a year prior out of high school, it, it seems like a lot of the GMs and a lot of the front offices were still struggling with the idea that a that a prep star could make the transition into the NBA. Is that is that correct? Yeah, without a doubt. And a couple factors went into it. Uh, only a handful of guys had made the jump before. Uh, in the 70s, it was Moses Malone, Harold Dawkins, and Bill Willoughby. And then Sean Kemp is kind of, he enrolled in college, but he never played for a college team. So he's kind of in that class. And then it was Kevin Garnett. So that was five big guys who had made that jump. So Kobe was the biggest guard in the thinking was that the big guys could assimilate into the NBA faster just because their bodies would allow them to. So there there was that skepticism over, over Kobe. And then also, you know, I think the biggest example of teams still being skeptical over it is that the Timberwolves could have taken Kobe. They just had the success of, with KG the year before. KG wasn't the MVP KG obviously yet, but he had shown that he had staying power in the league and he was going to grow and keep working to get better but the Timberwolves didn't want to kind of tempt bait twice in consecutive years and ended up taking Stephon Marbury that year. In communicating with Bob Bass, who again was the general manager of the Charlotte Hornets in 1996 when they selected Kobe Bryant in the draft, in, in the communications with him, did you sense any kind of lingering regret about not – I mean, there was there was a handshake deal, but there, were, there was no concrete deal with – with the Lakers in, pra- in place, did you sense any lingering regret about not keeping Kobe Bryant? There's probably a – he's probably tired of hearing about it. <laughs> and his his thing was, you know, if he was that – if everybody knew that Kobe Bryant was going to be Kobe Bryant, there was 12 other teams that could have taken him before they even had the pick. And, you know, to turn a, a 13th pick into a starting center who's uh, – pretty pretty good in this league was that's not too bad of a draft you know other other guys got that uh Vitaly Potapinko and Todd Fuller before Kobe Bryant was off the board uh, so we know from and, and also reading in your book Kobe Bryant uh threat made some maybe direct or veiled threats to possibly play overseas if if another team took him before there was an opportunity for him to go to the Los Angeles Lakers do you think that had Bob Bass gone back on the deal with the Lakers and kept Kobe Bryant. Do you think Kobe would have played in Charlotte? Uh, yeah, he would have without a doubt. And he's, he's even admitted uh, in the years since that it was all a big bluff and he would have played with the Nets or the Hornets or whoever would have drafted him. You know, at that time, his dream was to play in the NBA. All right, let's move on from Kobe Bryant to a, a player he tried to imitate, dominate, overcome. He he now owns the Charlotte Hornets. His name, of course, Michael Jordan. You write a lot about him in this book. As an executive with Washington, he drafted prep star Kwame Brown, number one overall in 2001. Was he locked into Kwame Brown from from the beginning of, of the draft preparations, or, or what was the lead-up to that number one overall pick like? No, he he wasn't. He was. He, they had focused on the three big high school guys at that time: uh, Eddie Curry, Kwame Brown, and Tyson Chandler. 
And those three guys had a lot of workouts before NBA draft teams kind of – it was kind of like a three-hitter race hitting down that, that wire. And basically there was one big final workout, uh, Kwame against Tyson Chandler, where they were already leaning toward drafting Kwame, but they kind of just wanted to have one last look. And Tyson Chandler left that workout kind of feeling that the Wizards were going to draft Kwame. Uh, feeling like he didn't have his best day in the gym and that Kwame was got the better of him that day. And that's what ended up happening is that they ended up drafting Kwame. Now, a lot of people, a lot of fans, I think maybe before the Anthony Bennett selection thought that this was quite possibly the the worst number one pick of all time. But in, in reading your book, it seems a lot more complicated than that. And, and it gets very complicated when Michael Jordan decides to join the Washington Wizards and become Kwame Brown's teammate. How much do you think that that aspect of the story did more damage to Kwame Brown than this idea that you talked about earlier in the interview, this proclamation uh, over reality? What do you think in your mind, what did more, more harm to Kwame Brown's career? Hey, I think it was a lot of different influences. And I think his relationship with Michael Jordan kind of veered suddenly. Uh, Michael went from being a kind of mentor, kind of playful guy who would kind of oversee Kwame's growth to being a very, very demanding teammate. And we all know Michael Jordan liked to test his teammates by putting them in pressure-packed situations and kind of testing their resolve to see if they would be there late in the game. So Kwame being a teenager, he, he just really couldn't handle that. And you know, I don't think there's many of us who, who would be able to. I, I, I can I can attest to that. I certainly wouldn't able wouldn't be able to handle MJ's pressure cooker. Um, <laughs> but but Kwame Brown would reunite with Michael Jordan and Rod Higgins, who was also with the Wizards organization at the time in Charlotte for a nice stint with the with the then Charlotte Bobcats. Uh, how does Kwame Brown's persistence and his his legacy as that first number one overall pick from prep to pro, uh, what do you think that that signals about that generation of, of prep to pro guys that, that Kwame was able to stick it out, carve a niche? Well, it's, it's funny because I think we look at Kwame's career as a, as a disappointment because he didn't live up to being a, a number one draft pick and didn't live up to being the, the guy that Michael Jordan handpicked to take in the draft where if you take a step back and you look at it and say, Hey, if Kwame had gone to the university, university of Florida for a year, you know, may have had a couple of his weaknesses exposed against better competition. Say he's a late lottery pick, late team pick. Um, we would look at his career a whole lot differently. He played a dozen years in the NBA and he was a, a, a pretty good, he just played way, way more and way longer than the average NBA career. So, I think if we look at it from that perspective, we get a a whole different measure of how we view Kwame Brown. Having written about several of Michael Jordan's missteps, Jonathan, how do you view his recent success as owner of the Charlotte Hornets? It's I think it's finding a groove, and it's, it's taking a little while. I, I like uh, I like where they're headed, and I like where they're going, and uh, I like Coach Clifford a lot. Uh, you know, they had some disasters with, with Dunlap and 
I don't, I don't think Silas was was the best uh, position for that guy, and everybody knows what kind of happened with with Larry Brown. So I, I like where it's going. Uh, Hornets power forward Marvin Williams was on the Hangtime podcast with Seku Smith, and, and he said he was glad he had one year in college, and his biggest reason was the, the lessons he learned from Roy Williams and the North Carolina staff on training like a pro, eating like a pro. And those things, Jonathan, they seem like simple things, like learning how to eat properly. Uh, but it, it, guys you wrote about in this book, they struggled with those simple things. What what went into that, do you think? I mean, the the NBA back in the height of this was a lot different than the NBA is now where, I mean, they didn't really have anybody to hold their hands off the court. And, and that's a huge adjustment. You're living it away from home for the first time in, of your life. You know, some guys, it was the first time they had ever opened a, a bank account. So they're just uh, really, really getting experienced and exposed to life for the first time, a lot of them. So think about all the transition that they make, have to make off the court and then think about all the transition they have to make uh away from the court where, I mean, that's just a lot coming, coming at you. I think now the NBA is a whole lot smarter where they have developmental coaches and they have people who will tell you where to live, tell you where to eat, those type of things that kind of really help complete the, the transition rather than just throwing the person, the player into it and saying, you're a professional now, let's go. Again, this is a great book. Showed all angles, players, AAU teams, colleges, prep academies, families, and the pro organizations that drafted these prep stars. With so many involved, is it impossible to point to a boogeyman that ended the prep to pro tunnel in 2006? Uh, yeah, that's, that's difficult because, once again, there's a lot of different influences and factors. I think the one of the biggest things that I think needs to be corrected is that there's, there's a lot of people who have a stake in the success of the players who made it. And a lot of people willing to credit for, for guys who became superstars when nobody is will, really willing to, to accept the blame and responsibility of guys who didn't make it. Um, whether it's the NCAA, the NBA agents, coaches, et cetera, where I, I just think there needs to be some type of culpability uh, for it, you know, and I'm I'm not even involving the players, but you know they were teenagers, and and when they had that chance to to kind of make a name for themselves, you try and grab that as soon as you can. Well, we're we're coming up on new collective bargaining agreement talks. Michael Jordan involved heavily in those talks, as reported. Where do you where do you hope that the conversation on the age limit rule heads in, in this next collective bargaining agreement? I mean, in a perfect world, they come up with a, some type of baseball-like rule where guys can either come out of high school or if they go to college, they have to stay for at least two years. And I think that way they'll be much closer toward getting a college degree than this. You can't even call it one and done. It's just a, a few months and done. Uh, you know, and in that sense, also, a guy like Ben Simmons, he didn't really help anybody by going to LSU for just one year. He didn't help himself. He didn't help school or his program other than just more money coming in for these first few months but it's not like you can say that program is better off by hosting them for a few months so i mean i would like to see that but i, I doubt it'll happen 
He's Jonathan Abrams. The book is Boys Among Men. Get it now. We just we just touched the surface uh, with, with this line of questioning. There's so much more in the book, so many great stories. Thank you, Jonathan, for joining us. I appreciate it. Good interview. So good, Doug. Great. No, it's it nothing, no, has nothing Doug, to do with that. Me. Was the questioning, the pace? No, listen. The warmth. I feel of your like voice. I really pushed the floor on that podcast. <laughs> on that. Hey, he's a cool guy. I mean, he's done every podcast in the known universe, yeah, we so were, he had to check ours off his list. Yeah, but uh, right. it was cool to have him in here. Yeah, it was, and it's a great book. Uh, a lot of fantastic stories that we won't spoil uh, that we didn't get into. Great in, book in that, in that interview. Yeah, and I think he 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 lays some interesting points out there in the end of that interview about you know some possible solutions because again this is coming up in collective bargaining agreement and I think everyone on either side of the argument of whether prep stars should be able to go straight to the NBA can agree that the one and done system is not really it's not that, not working not working it, it's not helping college basketball it's not necessarily helping the, the NBA in any significant way than, than before the rule change. So, you know, if you're on the NBA side, I think you want to extend this thing to two years. If you're on the side of the prep stars, then you, you don't want to see that. Where where do you fall on this? I think it makes sense for, I think guys should be able to go. If they're good enough to go, they should be able to go. But This is America, right? This is America, right? Yeah. This isn't Russia, is it? No. Okay. Um, <laughs> Yet. <laughs> yeah, I think they should be able to go, but I also think it's ridiculous that if you, let's say you go try out for the, you know, declare for the draft, don't get drafted. Well, sorry, can't go back to school. I mean, you know, so there's parts of that that's that's silly, right? Yeah, it feels like guys are kind of boxed in in a sense, and and it just it it doesn't seem there see there has to be, and I, I kind of I when Jonathan laid this out like an MLB type farm system or and I think the NBA it's like the NBA instituted this this rule change and they didn't really have the the other systems in place yet like if there were a a, a really substantial d-league system or some kind of international system that could help these kids who don't necessarily belong in college don't want to be in college but there isn't like if you go to the d-league out of high school you're you're setting yourself behind the eight ball in terms of money yeah, and and in terms of of the way you're viewed, you know the way your game is viewed, and a lot of that. You Europe's know, the route to go, I guess, if you're going to go that route. Brandon or, Jennings or, or, did that, but I think it would be even harder to do that. And again, once you come into the NBA, you don't get the same advantages that you would get if you're able to enter the draft. You're behind the eight ball. You don't get that guaranteed right. money. You don't get on that rookie scale. It's so Simmons Simmons had to go to college, right? Because he was. He went to school in Florida, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Like he had to go to college, but uh, like uh, Exum, Dante Exum did not have to go because he was he didn't go to high school here, right? Right, and the rule is nineteen. Nineteen or your removed, high school graduating class removed one year from high school. But if you didn't go, like this kid, um, um, in, from in Canada, who is petitioning to Don, yeah, Don Maker. This is the this is actually the recruiting portion of the show, mm. the draft portion. <laughs> yeah, I haven't done my research yet. Be alone. Uh, but yeah, I mean it's ridiculous. It's a bit ridiculous. I think the the baseball uh, format is the one people are most familiar with, so it's probably the one that's most comfortable. And I don't think you're going to come up with a solution that's going to be perfect because 
you don't want guys coming out that aren't ready. So, I mean, that's the catch 22, right? You, you want people to be able to go, but you, there are some guys that need to go to college if they can. Uh, okay. You don't Maybe. think, uh, I, I don't know. What do you mean? You don't think there's guys that benefit Bryce Johnson? I think I mean, if you want, if you want to go to college, then it can benefit you. Yeah. But I don't think there's anyone that needs to go to college. I don't think that there's one guy you go, that guy really needs, needs an econ class. No, I'm talking about for, just for basketball. Oh. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm not saying everyone has oh, to go to college. Well, to but that's, yeah. that's the thing. If that's the case, then they're not going to get drafted. It's still – it's all a crap – what I'm saying yeah. is whether you come out of high school, one year of college, or four years of college, it's all a crapshoot. You're not – Oh, anyway, I, I don't. I'm already spoiling yeah, what's coming up next. So we did this. <laughs> Go ahead. Last thing, there are kids, especially in this book, their story. Abrams writes about guys we've never heard of. I've still never heard of that declared and didn't get drafted. Right. Well, so that yeah, well, and so and again, I don't want to spoil too much of yeah. the book, but but a lot of this is the guys around in the AAU systems right. that are around these kids that that push them when they're not ready, and that's what you have to try to get rid of. But I don't know that it's worth taking away the opportunity from the kids that, that are ready. Yeah. Okay. So we, we decided uh, for this week's Inside the Locker Room segment to ask a couple of guys their opinions on all of the situations, including Al Jefferson, who is a prep-to-pro star. Uh, and this is our first – we're pretty proud of this. This is our first uh, full kind of feature piece. Uh, so take a listen. From 1995 to 2005, 39 young men went to sleep one night as high school basketball superstars, only to wake up the next day and become NBA professionals. Kobe Bryant may have put on a Hornets hat in 1996, but only one of this elite club has ever put on the teal and purple. With the 15th pick in the 2004 NBA draft, the Boston Celtics select Al Jefferson from Prentice High School. He originally intended to go to the University of Arkansas, but instead, Jefferson decided to unleash his unique mix of size and agility on the NBA. As most prep-to-pro stars would find out, the transition into professional basketball would prove more physically and emotionally taxing than they ever thought. You know, getting ready for the season, like training camp and all that stuff. That was probably the most difficult thing. You know, coming from high school, you weren't expected to play in one city, travel and play in another city, and be ready and be expected to play your best. We're talking training camps full of grown men worried that you might be there to take their job, their livelihood, away from them. Seemingly endless practices, constant travel across the country. This was nothing like the small gems and short trips that defined his senior year at Prentice High School. In contrast, the newest addition to the Charlotte Hornets, Frank Kaminsky, spent four long years at the University of Wisconsin, an elite Division I program under a tough and old-school coach in Bo Ryan. Surely Frank would be prepared for the physical demands of life in the NBA. Uh, it's pretty grueling feels like the season started like two years ago, so it, it's, it's been a long year, but, you know, I'm doing what I love to do. Even a four-year college star eventually succumbs to the toll that the NBA unleashes on the body, and that doesn't surprise Al Jefferson one bit. 
you catch them rookies be sleep before you even leave the arena when you're on the way to the airport. You know, because they're just not used to it. That's why we call it the rookie wall. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. We're going to build the wall. Ah, yes, the infamous, possibly mythical rookie wall. Not just reserved for prep prodigies or one-and-done freshman phenoms. Frank Kaminsky has certainly had an up-and-down year statistically, especially his three-point shooting, which has fallen away for weeks at a time. Maybe he did hit the wall, but he's done what some haven't been able to do, and that's get back up. He's still a vital part of the Hornets' rotation, something he feels like staying in school helped him to maintain. It's really prepared me for this rookie season because that's kind of what it's been like. It's been up and down. Uh, I've had good games, I've had bad games, I've had good streaks, bad streaks. So, uh, you know, I've been through it before mentally and I know how to get through it now. The mentality, the maturity it takes to play at the highest level is something that was cited as a reason to institute this current age limit enacted in 2006. Though... Of those 39 prep stars taken in the draft, more than 70% were able to have extended NBA careers. They weren't all superstars like Kobe Bryant and Kevin Garnett, but they weren't all Corleone Young and Leon Smith either. All right, so what about the current rule? One and done. For those who are able to play in Division I college basketball, even for one year, the experience can be extremely rewarding and helpful. Take Hornets starting power forward Marvin Williams. He played one year at the University of North Carolina in 2004 and 2005 and helped the Heels win a national championship. I felt like I was one of those guys that benefited from the one-and-done situation. I learned a ton of things from Coach Williams, um, from the basketball side, from the professional side. Uh, you know, I think he, his one year, his influence on me, you know, was a big reason why I feel like I've had an okay career as a pro. So, if he learned so much in such a short amount of time, the question lingers. Why not stay longer? Learn more. Be more ready. I felt like from the situation that I came from, I had to take advantage of it because I had an opportunity to help my family. So many guys don't come from the best situations that are in the NBA today, and they have opportunities to really change their families' lives and, and take advantage of it. Huh. So we've looked at this from the angle of physical maturity and the angle of mental maturity. But then there it is. The philosophical. Should an adult, 18 years old, 19 years old, be able to use his gifts to take care of his family. As the NBA engages in labor talks again, flush with new TV money, the subject of extending the age limit even further could come up again. Will it be for the good of the game? Or is this a solution in search of a problem? Special thanks to Justin Thomas for his help reporting this story. He uh, is probably, if you if you need to talk to him, he's probably still curled up in a ball sobbing somewhere on Franklin Street over this University of North Carolina loss in the championship game. He's hurting. Justin, I feel you, bro. He went, they traveled. Travel safe. To, Get back to us safe. He just wanted to just rush. He wanted to feel it. He wanted to rush the Can street. you blame him, Doug? You were there. You've done it. I feared for my life. I I mean <laughs> You were going to the library though. That's different. No, it was it was crazy. I, like I will never claim to know 
what a war zone is like. Um, but there was there was fire. There were. It's a mass of humanity. It, was, it, it really was. Like I always say to people that you're in this crowd that's so big that you and everyone's moving in all kinds of different directions, and you were not moving. You were being moved. It was a it was physically right. Oh, okay. Not not emotionally. emotionally. That was when when Maybe. they beat Michigan State, I was moved uh, okay. emotionally. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, it, it's an interesting topic. This uh, should should players be allowed? And I I just come back to this idea of who benefits who benefits from extending the age limit to two years. Why why would the NBA are they protecting the owners? In the sense of, you know, you want to make the the guys that are draft make sure that the guys that are draft eligible that that the NBA product does not mm-hmm. suffer. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think I don't buy that argument because again, the draft is a crapshoot. It's a gamble. Everything's a gamble. They're always going to be bad picks. They're always, always going, going to be, to be bad home picks. runs. And there's always going to be strikeouts. Yeah. So, but do you think? I mean, you talk about the marketing aspect of it, you know, it's free marketing for the NBA to have these guys in college for one or two years so people know who they are when they come to the NBA. Do you buy that anymore? I mean, I feel like... But this, it's so different now than in 1995, right. where there's whole systems set up still for these prep stars to get them into the to the right colleges. So, you know, you're going to know if this if the pipeline were opened back up, you're going to know who these guys are. Like ESPN's not going to shy away from... That's showing true. you the next LeBron James. That's true. Yeah, that's true. So you, that's what I'm saying. I don't know why would the NBA look out for the NCAA. I don't understand that from that perspective. I just don't. I want to know who benefits because don't tell me it's about the kids. Just don't tell me that because I don't believe it's about it's money. The money is somewhere. There's re, there's a reason. Right. Well, I think they again. I mean, I think some of them would benefit, but. The rules are not in place to to benefit the kids, right? I mean, that's not the idea behind the rules. I, I don't think so. Again, I I just look at the I look at the the crop of kids that that went from high school to the NBA, and I go, so many of these guys had decent careers. It wasn't. It, it's not. This is not a situation where it was five or six guys, and then the rest were garbage. And that's but that's not the perception, but that's the, right? The, it's a, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's, exactly. That's a good point for reading this book too, because it paints that. I mean, it paints the picture from. By the way, all angles, because he does a great job of looking at it from the it's player balanced. perspective, player perspective, you know, NBA front office perspective, um, and and what they're trying to find in these kids. And I mean. That's the thing that a lot of these kids don't realize. Though. I mean, once you get to the NBA, like you pointed out in that piece, Doug, I mean, you are, a, I mean, you are one, you're a commodity, right? So like GMA doesn't care, you know, what you went through to get the NBA and player, you know, the veteran player next to you cares even less. Cause like you said, are you going to take his spot? Are you taking food off of his family's table? So I mean, it's a whole different world, but um, do you think, do you think there'll be any changes to this next collective bargaining agreement? I I don't see any. I would be surprised, right? For the age limit to go away. So yeah, I think best case scenario. Two years, maybe. I, I, honestly, I, I think the, the light at the end of the tunnel is the expansion of the D-League and the investment that the NBA is obviously making in the D-League so that there is some kind of system that, that people could go to in order to pursue an MBA career that isn't college. 
But this idea that this idea that you, you got to go to school, that's just it's ridiculous. And it's fueling a lot of this NCAA uh, hypocrisy and nonsense and investigations. So and, are you for no age limit? Just flat out? Yeah, look, I, you know. I mean, because that's where I would call I would me air. a call me a commie pig, pinko liberal, no, but no, I'm no. I'm for people having the freedom to work and yeah. use their gifts. I mean, that's where I would go if you're going to go. If that's the easiest cut and dry, right? No age limit. Go earn your money. <laughs> you're good enough to go to the NBA. Yeah. I keep going back to the why. Why would the NCAA then be like, you try to go pursue this profession, so that means you can't <laughs> then retroactively come back and do this. It's not necessarily – that's the thing, too. It's not necessarily helping the NCAA product immensely. I don't think it's the one and done. Not. It's not. It's not. I mean the product is not getting any better because these kids – maybe it's no. more – maybe it's slightly more marketable. Anyway, well, we got to get, get to Nick Denning. He's uh, on the Hive Talk Live hotline. Nick, sorry, we got into a little passionate discussion there about prep to pro. Where do you fall on that, Nick? Where do you I- fall, Nick? I'm, I'm all for. I'm all for. I'm all for getting rid of the age limit. I think it's. Yeah. I mean, you could dance around the idea that maybe a baseball system where they give them a choice, they can go out of college, they can go out of high school, or maybe if they go go to college, they get a certain amount of time. But Doug, I really liked your point about the D League. I think the expansion of the D League could really open up a, a good avenue for um, for some of these high school players to be able to play professionally. They would be paying, playing professionally, obviously not at the, at the NBA money levels, but, you know, it gets, in, gets them into an NBA system, you know, gets them linked to the team. That's something I think that could, I, I'd, I'd hope to see more of in the future if they're going to keep, if they're going to keep the, um, the, you know, the one year in place. All right, Nick, uh, you're here for, uh, to tell us a little bit about what's going on in the National Basketball Association. It's time for what's happening around the NBA. Nick, start us off. Well, I was going to start with Thon Maker, but it seems you guys have touched on this a lot. That's I will say that it is Maker. Okay, good. Nailed yes, it. there yeah, we yeah. go. I, at least I think so. <laughs> um, anyways, so, so what, what I'll say is about Thon is, um, you know, if, if, the, if the NBA decides that he is eligible, this could potentially change the ways we interpret, like, what makes someone eligible. Because, I mean, this whole idea of prep school, like, does that – I mean, some people view it as a fifth year of high school – but you know, Thon's camp saying is no. This is this is all you know. Um, you know, this he, this doesn't count. He graduated high school in June of 2015. So this ruling could potentially affect how future high school prospects you know decide whether or not to go to the college or or maybe the pros. Um, Chief rookie Josh Richardson. It's on another note. Was named Eastern Conference Rookie of the Month. Uh, for the month of March. In 15 games, he led East rookies in scoring with 12 points a game and assists at 2.1. Um, and he shot 53.7%. This is pretty interesting because, like, Richardson was the 40th pick in the draft. This is not a name I don't think any of us expected to be, you know, in, even in the conversation for Eastern, Eastern Conference Rookie of the Month. So, you know, kudos to, to the Miami Heat. And, you know, that obviously this is, he's not their, um, their most prized, you know, pick from this last draft, but certainly it's some, something to uh, – get excited about considering the month he had. Um, final note, I mean, this is being talked about a lot, but I think it's obviously we got to work, we got to talk about it here. The Golden State Warriors are 68, and, or excuse, excuse me, 69-8. and eight. They have to go 4-1 and one to break the record. They have games against Minnesota tonight and then two games against San Antonio and two games against Memphis. So I gotta, I'm going to pose this to you guys. Um, 
ESPN's BPI rankings give them a 55% chance of winning 73 games. Do you think that they will break the record? Yes. Yes. Because I just think even though Steve Kerr, he can come out all day long and say that they're going to rest players and that they're going to do this and do that. But uh, Mike Conley's now out for the rest of the year for Memphis. How is Memphis still playing? I don't know. San Antonio <laughs> is – although, look, they won with like a, like a scraps crew that against uh, – who was it? Uh, they beat uh, LeBron. They beat the Cavs, didn't they? Uh, anyway, so, yeah, yeah, they beat the Cavs with, like, their second and second-and-a-half unit. But I, I just I just see whatever talent that they end up throwing out there night to night, I don't think they're going to rest, you know, three or four guys at a time. I, I just think that they, they have enough to, to get over the line. And I think the Spurs are more or less fine with that two seed. They're not going to catch the Warriors. They're not going to do anything else than they than where they are right now. So there's no real – motivation for them to go all out and And if you're the spurs i know this is ridiculous and pop would probably uh headbutt me for saying this but if you're the spurs do you really want to piss the warriors off by beating them and keeping them from the record well i think the tournament would be said for being able to beat them but they already beat them but what i'm saying but if you get them it's like it's like just teasing a bull like you 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 know you know you're probably going to face them in the playoffs anyway just let the bull go and and then try to regroup and, and figure it out. And I think more to that, they don't want to show anymore. I'm telling you, if I like I said, if I ever said that in front of Greg Popovich, he would hit me in the groin, <laughs> right in the groin, because it's so ridiculous. So that's two yeses from us, Nick. What, what do you think? I I think they will too. Um, it's not gonna. I don't think it's gonna be. You guys seem to feel pretty confident about this. My thing, like San Antonio is not gonna roll over, no matter what kind of team they put out there but I will say that I think it'd be even more satisfying satisfying for for San Antonio to let the Warriors get the record and then beat them in the playoffs like that would be like hey you got your record but hey we're the ones going to the NBA finals um Memphis like the last game um, of the season is against Memphis If, if Golden State goes into that game with 72 wins Memphis is is not the guys on that team are going to like not let that they're not going to make it easy I mean we we could get a couple of hard fouls um, I mean, just just imagine the, the 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 drama, just the craziness that game could possess. Because even though the Memphis has lost like six straight, um, I mean they're 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 they could potentially find themselves out of the playoffs very quickly here. I don't think they're going to want to be the team that lets um, the Warriors break the record. So I don't know. It, it's it'll be interesting. But they care. That's the difference. That's the difference in my mind. They care. They want the record. They yep. uh, you know if if Steph has a chance at four hundred, he says he's chucking. Like they, they want the records. They want to put them. They recognize that you only get one shot at this, you know, this this thing we call life, and you have to take full advantage of it. Man, there's this whole there was there was this whole culture that went through sports. It's like championships mean everything. We must yeah. get the championship, and I'm glad to see that fading away. Like if you have a chance at a, at, at an epic record, go for it. It makes things exciting. I will. Okay, I will. I'll go for it, Doug. I have. It's been a very emotional day for me. Um, yeah, we're all over the place. Well, you know, the UNC yeah. loss has just got me. It's very look. If you have an opportunity to win a ball game, go win it. Um, I want winners. Nick, I want to go back. Uh, this is something I mentioned in the five o'clock alarm this morning, uh, but I want to go back to the Josh Richardson thing because you see Miami taking advantage of a second round pick. Uh, and then uh, the Hornets face off against the Raptors tonight. 
their second-round pick, Norman Powell, is making waves for that team. Do, do you think, Nick, that the Hornets and Rich Cho specifically should start to put a little more onus now that they have a D-League team or will have one next season, should put more onus on the second round instead of uh, um, trading those picks away to try to get one of these gems like Norman Powell or Josh Richardson? Yes, with with the with the inclusion of the swarm next season, I think now like th- this should be more of a priority. In the, it, like up until this season, I would have said no because I think what Cho has figured out is that he can use these second round picks and you know bring in some you know a quality player that helps them in, in you know in the immediate. I think a lot of these a lot of these you know these rich you know, these uh, what is it. Uh, Trader Cho, you know, trades that we love to throw around here that he's done, that we've said these are brilliant moves. They've come because, you know, he's been able to sort of dangle those second-round picks. Um, but, no, I think with with the Swarm now, you got to take some chances on in the second – got to use the second-round picks. you got to find guys that could potentially turn out to be gems and let them let them develop in the, in the, in the D-League. It, it just can't all be, you know, your – your fringe guys on the on the current roster, and then just a collection of other guys. I mean, just see what you can what you can do with some of those second round picks. Well, let's move on to this Toronto game again. They tip off at seven thirty in Toronto, the Air Canada Center. David, any matchups you're watching for this game? Toronto. You know, I'm interested to see in the playoffs for Toronto is Bismack Biyombo. Want to see Drake? Bismack Biyombo. Drake. Um. I think Why? it's just cool for him to get in. The Hornets are in now. He's in now. They're not together. But uh, he's played well for them up there. And, you know, it's funny. I think letting letting Biz go was kind of a key for the Hornets to move in a different direction and get to the playoffs. And Biz leaving the Hornets uh, ended, up being, ended up being his ticket. Yeah, because he's playing – Nick, he's playing such a significant role uh, off the bench and, and, and a specific role. Like, he has a function on that team, whereas I think the Hornets always needed him to do a little more than he could do, whereas the, it seems like the Raptors, even though he's developed offensively, I think, but the Raptors seem to be okay with him doing what, what he does best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, dad, I, I, I agree there. Um, I think, yeah, I, I've said this before, but I think I, I always felt that that – Biz's best years, like the Hornets would not get Biz's best years; that they'd be somewhere else, and we're they going tried. to be seeing that right now. You know, but it's, but you know, it, it, it's. I'm, I'm really happy for him. I'm really happy, and I'm happy that you know. I think our managing editor Josh gets gets to watch him play in Toronto. You know, at least at least someone gets to reap the rewards of, of Bismack Biombo um, playing well. Um, yeah, I'll definitely be rooting for him. Um, I'll be rooting for him tonight. Just hopefully the Hornets, you know, get the win rather than uh, even if he has a good game. Yeah, I call Josh after every Raptors game, and I just say, "Tell me about Biz. What's he up to? <laughs> how did How did he do tonight? Explain it, but like really slowly." Is he happy? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Keys to the game, guys. Do we have any keys to this game uh, of playing Toronto again? The last game, all the way back in January first, the rosters were a lot different, uh, but Toronto was red hot uh, from beyond the arc, and they pulled down twenty. 20 offensive rebounds. What are your keys to the game tonight? Mm, uh, for me, I'm looking for – I think Kimba Walker is going to have to get back to that Kimba March form. Um, he got it back to a little bit versus the Cavs. He always seems to gear up, cur- curiously enough, for the Raptors. Uh, so he usually plays well against them. Kyle Lowry 
uh, going head to head with him. But that backcourt up there is so good. But I think Kemba, especially without Batum, is going to have to to give him maybe thirty tonight for them to have a have a shot up there. Nick, your yeah, piece I'm gonna is. Say, Oh, yeah, so I, I was going to say, you know, you, you got to contain uh, DeMar DeRozan. He's averaging 27 a game against the Hornets this season. Um, they, they've been able to sort of temper Lowry a little bit. So I think if, if they can just contain DeRozan just a little bit more, and it's going to be harder now with Batum out, but, you know, Lee will, Lee will probably get the assignment, and, you know, Lee's been able to, to play pretty good de- perimeter de- defense since he joined the Hornets. Um, so, you know, we do have a guy who I think could potentially, you know, contain DeRozan a little bit. Uh, injury update, no Nick Batum for this game. Of course, that left knee sprain that took him out of the second half against the Cavaliers in the Hornets' last game, although we, we did get word that the injury is not very serious. So we're not talking yeah. about a Jimmy Butler-type out four weeks knee sprain. It's more, I think, of a day-to-day, but he will not play in this game against Toronto. And I think that, you know what, I think that's a savvy move. Maybe he could play, but I think it's a savvy move to keep him away from Toronto because Toronto, every time the Batum plays against Toronto, they start licking their lips and, and looking a little you too, can't. nothing to see here. Looking a little too hard at Nick Batum. Keep it moving. Keep it moving, buddy. Don't be thinking about free agency and Nick Batum. You just keep on walking. Um <laughs> Oh my God! So, was that too much? I'm sorry. I'm no, a jealous. No, look, no. I'm a jealous fan. I don't. I'm sorry. Um, so yeah, Nick, no Nick Batum, but the Hornets will get Al Jefferson back from that quad injury, the injury to his right quad. So they do have Al Jefferson. I I expect him to play some significant minutes, and that's good, I think, for the Hornets because the one thing that Toronto can bring in their first and their second unit is size. And they play with a lot of it. And so not having Nick Batum on the wing definitely hurts the Hornets in terms of size, but being able to bring in big Al Jefferson uh, versus Bismack Biombo and forcing him to play, you know, inside, I think could be. I like it, Doug. Big Lynn game. Looking for a big game for Lynn, maybe. I would, I would hope so. He didn't play in the last one against Toronto. So he'll be, He'll be, uh, I'm sure, juiced and ready to go. And, and yeah, I mean, guard play is going to be huge. Shooting is going to be huge. Shooting is shooting is key. Shooting is key. Well, outside, hey, outside shooting. Hey, I have a question for you guys. Mm-hmm. Is uh, Marvin is he going to attempt a third thunder dunk tonight? I hope so. Mm. For the for the children's yeah, I, sake, they need to get excited for these <laughs> playoffs. He's getting the spry. I mean, I can't. He almost got that one to go down. Who was that on? Uh, Thompson. In Cleveland? Thompson. Yeah. All right, Nick, thanks for joining us. We'll uh, talk to you next week. Yeah, thank you. Nick Denning at, at the high. Follow him on Twitter at Nicholas Denning. Or, no, no, at Nick Denning. I always get confused because he's Nicholas Denning on SB Nation. All right, that'll do it. <laughs> thanks for sticking with me tonight, Doug, for real. Hey, no it's, worries. It's Listen, been crazy. This is all about, this I left is all you about support. This we're all in this together. Uh, we're, we're, we're on this journey to the playoffs together. And you folks, of course, if you're still listening, God bless you. Yeah. Let me play the right outro here as we uh, as we sign this one off. Enjoy the game tonight, folks. Hornets-Raptors, this is a big one. Away game, opportunity for the Hornets to really make a statement in Toronto. That'll do it for us. Thanks so much uh, to our guest, Jonathan Abrams. Go buy his book, Boys Among Men. You'll learn something. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Hive Talk Live. Go to atthehive.com for all the latest news and analysis for David, Nick, and producer Katie. I'm Doug saying stay bought in, stay believing. We're almost there, folks. All hail the teal and purple.
Thank you.